Hi everyone, and welcome to this brand new show. Just a quick word of warning up front. Like so many other projects, with this being brand new, I'm afraid we have had some degree of teething problems, namely that Connor mucked up the recording for our first batch of episodes, so please do know that the audio quality for this series will pick up significantly three or four episodes in. Still, if you're happy with the vibe of a high-quality radio phone-in, Hey, if it's good enough for the Cracked podcast, it's good enough for us. Settle in, because everything else about Development Hell is on point! Like, subscribe, tell a friend, enjoy! Rendezvous with Rama. Hello and welcome to Development Hell, a brand new podcast where we take a look at, at the, the film ghosts of the past, the skeletons in Hollywood's cupboard, closet. What's the uh, phrase? The, the, uh, the, ghosts <laughs> in the, the ghosts in the wardrobe, I think that's the phrase you're looking for. <laughs> uh, I am Sol Harris. You may or may not know me from a similar film podcast called Diminishing Returns. Joining me uh, for the next however many episodes of this show that, that end up being produced, is the one, the only, Connor Murray. Hello. Uh, uh, you don't know me. Um, I was on Diminishing Returns once. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I work at sea. I work on the ocean, but uh, we know each other from university. It's probably worth mentioning, we, we studied film at university, uh, so we are, you know, a couple of pretentious little film wankers. Uh-huh. We know everything about films. Uh-huh, that yeah, there is to know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know about you, Connor, I, I completely... I, I go to Rotten Tomatoes, I look at the critic score, and then I, I spit on the audience score. Well, what I do is I just start with the assumption that everyone's wrong, and <laughs> uh, then that my opinion is the only one that's valid. That That's it. I don't even read reviews. Cool. So, of course, you, you've chosen well uh, with this podcast, because we obviously know everything that we're talking about, uh-huh. uh, and, and we're taking a kind of analytical film history approach here, I think. Uh, back at uni, I don't know if you remember, Connor, uh, the the film, was it just called Film Theory Lectures that no one ever went to? Um, I think it was Film Theory or Film History or something. They yeah. they had a different lecture, like, every six months. Mm. Like I think we were two of the only people who actually went to those lectures they it, it seemed pretty i loved it i enjoyed it. i love watching all that old crap you know uh, i'll enjoy <laughs> do you remember near the end of it when uh, one of our newer lecturers and he he played us a film and it was just the most embarrassing awful dreadful film awful acting uh british people saying stuff like your ass is grass <laughs> Uh, just very unconvincing crime drama, obviously shot in someone's grandma's house. It it was terrible, and we were laughing at it all the way through. And for the sake of the story, I'm just going to say his name was uh, Chekhov. <laughs> and then at the end, it, it came up, written and directed by Chekhov, and everyone just sort of went, "Ooh," because <laughs> he hadn't told us, and we were just laughing at it. Oh and then he, he and he came up in front of everyone and went, "So what did everyone think?" Okay, not so good, not so good, okay. Um, oh, I wanted to hug him, the poor guy. Anyway, that, that was our university experience. Uh-huh. So we're obviously very, very well equipped to uh, walk you through the history of, of unmade film. 
listener. Uh-huh. There's a lot of these. There's absolutely loads. I, I've been mulling over this podcast as a an idea for a while now, and a while back I, I thought, I better just make a list on a piece of paper of, you know, all the obvious films that could be covered on a show like this. And I've got them pinned up on a on a cork board at the minute. Uh, I very swiftly used up the whole piece of A4, four columns on a piece of A4, and had to move on to a second one. So I'm looking at it now, you know, there's there's all sorts on there. I've got Fallen Down 2 on there, uh, the Mickey Mouse movie, Beetlejuice 2, Kevin Smith's Moose Jaws. These are just some of the many films we could cover on on this show. So, <laughs> Do you remember the time for a Halloween I dressed up as the guy from Falling Down? Yes! I do. Yeah, that was one. I, and, and someone got it as well. Like we went to the, <laughs> yeah. we went to a club or a bar or something, and someone just said, "Are you Michael Douglas from Falling Down?" I was like, <laughs> "Did you know that?" <laughs> I believe that same year, I dressed up as Ed from Shaun of the Dead as a zombie at the end of the film, and our, our mutual friend Sean dressed up as Sean from Shaun of the Dead, and I had the exact same T-shirt he wore in the film that said. Uh, got wood on it or something like that like it was a fantastic costume and bearing in mind we're film people we went to like a film people halloween party yeah and no one had a fucking clue who we were <laughs> so it's that's impressive if they got you or if they got yeah, michael Douglas. it was just some random guy in a club i don't think it was one of uh, maybe it was one of our friends or something i don't know but someone got it that was just great do you remember i believe that same year another mutual friend had dressed up as basil faulty from the episode of faulty towers where he hurts his head and has a bandage <laughs> put on it and then this man claiming to be john bishop <laughs> um but obviously not john bishop the comedian <laughs> accosted him very drunk and aggressively outside a club on the way home and kept saying, you're a fucking little Mr. Bean, mate. You're a fucking little Mr. Bean. <laughs> That's right. And then he was just like, I'm Basil Faulty. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Oh, I remember that. And of course, there were lots of people who just thought he was Hitler after he shot himself <laughs> in the bunker. <laughs> with a bandage on his head. Um, but yeah, of, of those many, many films... Because this is the thing, Hollywood, it's a, it's a moving machine. And, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how familiar you guys actually are listening to this with Hollywood, but I'll tell you now. It's it's no more well organized or held together than anything. Everything in life is a fucking shambles. I produced a film that ended up in cinemas once, and I tell you what, that was a load of fucking shambles. So it's always nothing is a, a well oiled machine, and Hollywood's no exception. You only have to look at the total mess of changing directions that the Star Wars franchise has become, or DC's attempts to launch a cinematic universe to rival Marvel's. We may talk about films in both of those franchises at some point on the show. Uh, But yeah, my point is, there are loads of films that often get quite a far way through the process. Um, Very occasionally, cameras will roll, and the film will just sit in a vault and never get edited together properly. Uh, More often than not, it gets you know, doesn't get that far and they just do a lot of pre-production. But that's what we're going to be talking about. So, what are we doing this week? <laughs> oh, okay, this week, uh, uh, thank you very much for the honour of letting me start, by the way. But uh, awesome. we're going to start with Rendezvous with Rama. And Ooh. the French pronunciation is Rendezvous, I believe, if that's correct. <laughs> Beautiful. That's how they. That's how you're supposed I, to say it. I, I, I'll, I'll read it out for you with my... I have a flawless French accent. Okay. Um, I, I, I worked on a project with John Malkovich and he took the time to teach me. Rendezvous. 
Mite Rame. Renzezvus avec Rame. I am vaguely familiar with this. Uh, I, I remember probably about 10, maybe longer uh, than 10 years ago, uh, I remember when I was first really getting into cinema, putting together an IMDb watch list. Uh, it might be before they even had the watch list function, and it was just adding titles to a, a, a different list, because you can just build lists on there, can't you? Um, I remember going through everything on IMDb's... You could filter all the films by year, and I think I filtered it to the following year and beyond to look at everything that was coming out in the system. And I was just going through, ooh, uh, uh, Confederacy of Dunces, that sounds interesting. Oh, they're making Beetlejuice 2, are they? Interesting. Uh, anything that was listed on there at the time. And I remember seeing Rendezvous with uh, Rama, and something about it obviously caught my attention. I think it may have had an interesting director attached to it or something like that on IMDb, so I'm very interested to hear more about it, because beyond the title, I know nothing about this okay my my first encounter with it was years and years and years ago um my dad is a big sci-fi fan so he's got loads of books by arthur c clark and isaac asimov like all over the walls you know all that you know all the stuff from like the 50s can you can you recommend me an isaac asimov story i i've got a book called it's something like the complete robot <laughs> it's like a load of his short stories and i i am very 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 slowly working through it but they all just seem a bit like they don't go anywhere is there like a definitive best isaac asimov i should read off the top of your head uh off the top of my head actually no uh, oh no wait, no excuse me no the foundation foundation series the foundation okay yeah the foundation series that's that's pretty if you're gonna read you know like only like one thing by asimov just uh, just do that. Just read the foundation once. Uh, sorry to sorry to hijack <laughs> your your intro to demand a, a, a recommendation. There, carry on. So I'll start off with a brief synopsis of it. Uh, Rendezvous with Rama. It's a science fiction novel by Arthur C. Clarke, and it was first published in 1973. It's set in the year 2131, and what happens is uh, an alien starship enters the solar system and the story is right. told from the point of view of a group of human explorers who intercept the ship in an attempt to unlock its mysteries that summary is taken directly from wikipedia i feel like i've got every <laughs> right to do that because i just donated to them recently so that's that's oh, why that well, was a little you, bit you basically own you basically own wikipedia that's a, i'm like a shareholder now they have to listen yeah, to me yeah. you know uh -huh. exactly. so um so yeah so it started off as a book as a novel as a fully fleshed novel and what happens is there's like an asteroid detection system set up on Earth. Right. And uh, this spaceship comes into the system and uh, they don't know it's a spaceship at the start. They think it's an asteroid, but it's moving obscenely fast. It's moving faster than than should be, you know, considered possible. And yeah. Uh, yeah. they learn that it's not an asteroid, that it's actually come from outside the solar system. It's come from a different neighborhood. Oh. And then uh, they send out a probe. Doesn't, doesn't that happen in Independence Day or something? Well, at the start of, I mean, I'm sure they were ripping off Rendezvous with Rama. What, what happens in Independence Day is that it, it's a shot of uh, the plaque that Neil Armstrong put on the moon, and uh, <laughs> and uh, like a, an ominous shadow goes over it, and then that shadow <laughs> takes over the moon. I'm sure there's a Hollywood, like hacky Hollywood sci-fi movie 
yeah, where well, they track something that they think is an asteroid, but then they're like, it's moving too far. Maybe it was a, maybe it was like contact or arrival or one of the more high art, high end arty attempts at one. This this is definitely a thing. I'm, maybe it was Men in Black. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm right. Carry on talking. I'm gonna. I'm gonna... <laughs> no, this is one of those films. That's one of the things that's actually contributed to it not getting made. I think, and it's over time, it's been picked at. Oh, of course, yes, yes. I. This is something that we're probably going to run into time and time again on this show. Yeah. Uh, the go-to example of this for me is always. Uh, I don't know if you've read Watchmen, listener. I know you've read it, Colin. Uh-huh. The uh, the seminal graphic novel uh, by Alan Moore. But of course, there there is a scene in that where. Uh, someone is handcuffed to um, a pole or a radiator or something in a burning house, and the guy chucks him a, a hacksaw and says, like, here, free yourself, and sort of walks away, and the guy goes, well, I can't possibly cut through the chain before the flames kill me, and he's like, yeah, but you can cut through the bone, can't you? And it's this really nice little moment, uh-huh. and then they adapted Watchmen into a mostly very faithful film, 10 years ago, 2009. And um, they completely reworked that scene because the Saw movies had come out and basically (laughs) used the exact same premise two or three, four years ago. Five years ago, maybe. But yeah, um, Saw just kind of cribbed an idea and then it would look like they were ripping it off. Happens a lot, that sort of thing. Did you know that that, uh, that action of, you know, cutting through your own bone to save yourself... Uh, from Watchmen, that was actually the inspiration for 127 hours. <laughs> That's a little-known piece of trivia for you there. You know, you know, they did actually use that scene in the original Mad Max as well. Thinking about it, there's definitely a sequence where Mel Gibson like handcuffs someone. I saw yeah. Mad Max once, and uh, I was like, "Well, why are they calling him Mad Max? This is M- <laughs> Mad Max is the wrong title." It's because the thing is, like, he's like, uh, he's like a cop, right? He's like a. It should be. It should be called Maximum Mad. No, I, I think it should be like. It should be called like Perfectly Reasonable Max or something. <laughs> the guy, he's a cop with a family, and you know, like, he's you know, he's protecting bad guys. And the you know, I was expecting like a kind of psycho kind of thing, you know, like. That doesn't make him mad. That's Jesus. Fuck, I'd probably do that. But maybe, maybe they mean mad as in angry. Like he's mad as hell now. It's Australian. So what? What do they say? But oh yeah, that's mad, mate. He he's mad. That's proper mad. Christ, mate. Max is fucking psycho. <laughs> fucking psycho, Max. Well, well, I go back to the synopsis. Yes, yes. Rendezvous with Rama. <laughs> so they find out that it, that it is a spaceship after it's been detected. Uh, a crew gets sent out, led by Commander Norton. And I'm, I'm telling you the name because that's kind of specific to one of my points later on as well, actually. He leads the team out that goes to this uh, mysterious starship. And it's a huge starship, by the way. I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but it's 50 by 20 kilometers. Uh, or 31 by 12 miles if you're from, like, I don't know, some rare imperial country. Uh, but anyway, so... And when they board, they see all kinds of amazing things. Basically, it's it's hollow on the inside. Right. Mo- most spaceships 
Ah. Uh. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, there's lots of air, there's lots of room to breathe and stuff. So yeah. So inside, it's like wrapped around with land and with oceans and stuff. And every, like uh. gravity is made by Coriolis force. You know. So yeah. it's rotating. So whenever you step on it, you know, like that's that's the artificial gravity. That's how that's done. And so there's all these amazing things, you know, like clouds, you know, being wrapped around and, you know, like a circle, like hugging the cylinder and city structures and all these amazing things and phenomena. And uh, but the thing is, it's completely deserted. So this starship crew, they're the only people on it. And the only other sign of life that they see is like a, a flower that grows somewhere at one point and then they take it and keep it for analysis and there's little like cleaning robots like little biological robots like rumbas yeah kind of but uh they're kind of they look kind of like spiders i think spider rumbas yeah like a, so a rumba was oh. spider legs and spiders seem to be a common theme in this series of books uh actually later on in the series this is not this book but this is later on so so is this the first the first in a series of books it, it's the first in a series a series of four but arthur c clark says it, would, it was only supposed to be this one you know he wrote it without mm. thinking that there was more going to be it, that he was going to write more but i think that's yeah. total bullshit um i think that's it's kind of like uh, the wachowskis saying that the matrix was always going to be three you know you know, that's, yeah, that's all yeah. BS, but, um, but anyway, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, so, you know, so this huge spaceship, it's completely deserted. And this crew is just trying to figure out, you know, well, what's it for? What does it do? How does it work? And, uh, you know, they find some stuff out, but it's a situation where one answer reveals two more questions, you know? So it's written by the guys who wrote Lost, presumably J.J. Abrams and Roberto Orkey. And uh, yeah, Game yeah, that's it. Nothing, nothing ever gets answered. It's like... Yeah, the the, yeah. the point of the book is it's more it... of a exploration of how something like that would actually get made. You know, like it's a technical yeah. sort of a discovery of okay, so how would a craft like this actually operate? Like, and more about how these yeah. things work. It's more of a technical book that way. Have you have you read it? The book? Yeah, yeah, I, I read it years ago. I read all four. I read uh, Rendezvous okay. with Rama and the three books afterwards. I'm I'm currently reading Jurassic Park, and it's very technical uh, in a way that I think Michael Crichton is generally. Um, in the the whole book is pretty much just people saying, "Right, we wake up at six a.m. and then we feed the dinosaurs at six thirty, and we have to feed them a mixture of oatmeal and and protein developed specifically because of their digestive tract." And it's it just like. It's like reading a Wikipedia page on looking after biologically engineered dinosaurs, yeah. but something about it is so completely compelling. Like, I love it. Yeah. It's wonderful. So I think there's a place for this very technical style of writing a, a story. So I'll have to, I'll have to check it, it is, out. And uh, it sounds like I'd enjoy it. Yeah, like, um, it is, like... It's one of those books where this kind of thinking in sci-fi, like, I don't know, like, if you know this about me, but I love sci-fi as well. I've picked that up from my dad, you know, and, mm. Um, mm. you know, this comes from a time in sci-fi where people could start to think about these kinds of things, you know, like someone from 1850 yeah. would never be able to even imagine something like this, you know, so that's why. Yeah, of course. So that's why yeah. all these novels and then, you know, also like Ringworld by Larry Niven. They all started to come up at around the same kind of time. One of my favourite uh, books is H.G. Uh, Wells' The War of the Worlds. Yes, oh, yeah. That's obviously incredibly early science fiction. That's unbelievable. Yeah, part of the charm is you're, you're seeing, you know, a first-hand account of, of uh, science fiction from a different time and a different understanding of science, and it's... It, it, it's genuinely... Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I said for years that... Um, 
they needed to produce a film set in the Victorian time when it was written. Uh, I believe there's a TV drama that's kind of fudged that whole concept now, but um, partly just because it, it's so not to say this in a in a derogatory sense but it's so primitive their understanding of science back then that it makes the aliens so much more imposing and scary but no it's fascinating to to kind of see how people were projecting um the ideas of their time onto concepts like outer space and and life on other planets and so on back then and I, i love all that Sci-fi always ends up being about now, actually. You know, it, it, it always, mm, it, it, mm. it's you, you just got it exactly right. It's always like a projection of what's happening now in some yeah. sort of, you know, fantastical way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It means that you kind of end up with a, a really nice little time capsule, I think, of a mood when you produce sci-fi. Or horror as well. Horror is similarly um, very reactionary based on what's going on culturally at the time. So I, I yeah, I, I have a soft spot for both genres as a a way of understanding the past up to uh, about eighteen ninety. Yeah, I, I love sci-fi books because yeah, they can do that. They they're like a little time capsule of the current moment, but they can also be more fantastical. You know, I mean, I love yeah. reading about stuff that uh, that that's just out there. You know, I love reading about other galaxies and aliens and stuff and like that. That's what appeals to me most. Does is there more plot or is it that's it? Uh, this crew uh, explores the ship. Um, they see little things here and there, but 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 virtually no questions get answered. Um, one moon colony uh, launches a nuclear bomb at it because because you know humans are humans and they just shit themselves and they're like kill it, so they just launch a bomb. But then the bomb gets defused, and uh, you know so they finish exploring the ship. They leave because the ship is about to get too fast for them to leave you know like it would get so fast because it's slingshotting itself around the sun it's it's actually using the solar system as a slingshot maneuver so they have to leave before it gets too fast for them to leave otherwise they'll never be able to slow down to get back to earth and what happens is just the lights switch off in, in the ship and then the starship crew are, the the exploring crew are just like okay better leave now and they leave <laughs> and uh you know, there's no big catastrophe, there's no big cataclysmic event or whatever. Mm. They're just like, oh, better go, guys. And then the lights switch off and they're like, yeah, we should do that. This actually sounds quite um, Lovecraftian in terms of its structural beats. Uh, I, I haven't read enough Lovecraft, actually, to, to make any sort of comparison there. Overwhelmingly, the vast majority of Lovecraft stories are main character uh usually writing a letter about what happened or something like that stumbles upon some opening to like a tunnel or something goes down it oh my god it's it's a whole ancient pyramid uh, ruins of an ancient civilization where they worshiped some gigantic ancient cosmic being and it it terrifies me the very scale of it and the civilization that existed it's terrifying and Oh my god, like there's a rustling or something's moved. I'm going to run and escape the temple and and rush back and now reader, I must be gone. I must stop writing in this letter because I fear I'm going mad hearing scratching at the door. But it, it's that sort of they just explore yeah. a, a, an idea for however many pages and Yeah, that's what this is. The the people that explore the the starship they're they're not really noteworthy um they're just mm. there 
uh, they, they can they can just do it. They're the only ship nearby that actually can. So you know yeah. they're not even like special people. So so when they leave, that's it. Um, it just finishes with a very uh, famous line from Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, is this a spoiler? Uh, are we allowed to spoil? Shall we spoil? Well, well, no. It's it's actually not really a spoiler because if you just Google it, it'll come up with the series of four. You know, is this like Beauty Killed the Beast at the end of uh, King Kong? Shit, that's a spoiler, isn't it? I just um, spoiled it. It's, yeah, King Kong dies. I mean, it's it's a pretty cool line. Um, but uh, okay, okay, I'll leave the actual line to preserve that moment. Maybe just just give us. Give us the first word of the line. Um, the. Ooh, strong <laughs> start. It's a strong start. Well, I, I can only hope this gets made into a film one day. Yeah, it, it just totally paves the way for sequels. Oh, really? Hey, if you like Development Hell, you might like this other show, Diminishing Returns, where I and another guy called Alan Turing take a guest on a weekly trip to development hell, not this show, the actual thing, to discuss a film then pitch our own ideas for the sequel. And for fans of this show, we've had Connor Murray on at least three times, probably more by the time you hear this. Diminishing Returns is available via all reputable podcast suppliers. Just search for it wherever you found this show, or head to dimreturns.com. Well, yeah, so so that's that's the book. Um, but we are here to discuss the film project that never got made. So, the problem with Rendezvous with Rama is that it is one of the grits, you know. And, and it's... Uh, Rendezvous with Rama, correct me if I'm wrong, is one of these films that, uh, one of these books that's pointed to as as unfilmable as well, isn't it? Yeah, um, and um, it's for that it, reason. It's is that, that yeah, Les Misérables, the musical, often got that thrown its way. I remember. Watchmen, the graphic novel, got that thrown its way. Yeah, a lot of these quote-unquote unfilmable films have since been filmed. Yeah, it, but, it's uh, like um, yeah. it's because I think it's got that moniker because in order to make it filmable, films are all you know like a versus you know like especially at the mm. Hollywood level you know they need to be struggling yeah. to overcome something even if it's you know like a character drama. Oh god, there's, yeah, there's still a struggle to overcome something. Oh, not not just films. I I would say stories. A, a story isn't a story without conflict. Like conflict is is narrative. But yeah, there, there's none of that in Rama. I mean, the Starship mm. crew—they're a well-oiled team. You know, <laughs> they work together absolutely fine. You know what? This is another thing. H.P. Lovecraft is famously pretty unfilmable. His entire. Uh, works are all pretty much impossible to adapt to screen apart from apart from reanimator which was a bit of a change of pace um but it is it's that lack of conflict they're more like little pieces of prose yeah there's lots of little small challenges like what what one of their crew members gets uh, stranded but uh, but they rescue him not too long after and they they find all these little little episodic things like the nuclear missile gets launched oh but then it's it's defused yeah yeah you know it's all very episodic that way there's a couple of reasons why this didn't work out as it did, because the director that was supposed to make it was David Fincher. Yes, this is that that is why this came upon my um field of awareness many years ago. The actual passion behind the project, the actual person pushing for it to get it made, is actually Morgan Freeman. That surprised me. Ooh. Yeah, he is mm. it's actually his passion project. 
I can't imagine Morgan Freeman being passionate about anything. He's so chilled out and relaxed. Uh, I watched some interviews of him talking about this, and he lights up. I know a good script when I read it. I certainly know a good story when I read it. Uh, Rendezvous with Rama was one of the best science fiction books ever. And, 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 and it's been picked at over the, the years. People have borrowed a lot of stuff from it. But the essence of Rendezvous with Rama is still there. He absolutely, his eyes go bright and wide and his whole body language changes. There's a few interviews about it. And when they ask him about it, you can tell that he's just grateful for the question. Oh, we should ask him to be on the show. Yeah. Yeah, and ask him about it. Like, he, would, he would love it. He, he would be over in a heartbeat if he thought he could get like, funding or a writer or something for it. Morgan, I, I will personally fund... Fuck it, I'll put up to £100 in if you come on the show. Yeah, well, I'm so... a, I mean, like, I'm a philanthropist now. I mean, I donated to Wikipedia. So, you know, I, I'm more than happy to, to throw a couple yeah. of quid that way out of my own generosity. And you, and you know one of the pages on Wikipedia, Mr. Freeman? It's the page on Rendezvous with Rama. Uh-huh. I want an executive producer credit, thank you. Yeah, it's only fair. When it comes to actually getting it made, he's had a bit of a bad luck. It's because the nature of the book itself, to get it made, substantial changes would need to be done for David Fincher to make it. I think right. it was a mistake getting David Fincher on board because David Fincher like, has, has got a very particular type of character study you know it's always like like a loner but gifted or some Mm. sort of intense personality you know driving it forward yeah there's none of that in rendezvous with rama Mm. like i'm all for changing the book to get it made uh, as long as the essence of the book is sort of kept i don't mind details so much you know i'm totally okay with that and the film can serve as like a new exploration you know something that maybe you didn't think about before like but david fincher would never make that kind of film who do you think would be a good director for this kind of project Uh, i i thought about this i was like who could potentially direct this and i came up with denis villeneuve i like that and he would stay pretty close to it i think he would try and stay very faithful to the book i was thinking someone like terence malick who just go like yeah. ridiculously arty with it, but I, I think uh, Denis Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve I, I think he would actually make a really nicely entertaining job of it, you know? Yeah, Terence Malick would probably fuck, I don't know, throw in some dinosaurs in there, but from like a couple of hundred yeah, years yeah. ago. And I'd be alright with that, I'd enjoy Yeah, that'd that, be grand. It might be, it might be three hours of... Uh, Slow motion or mm. shots of trees and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, he would and and they are trees on a on a spaceship thing, so that's you know yeah. more interesting than. I also got thinking about other guys as well. I thought about Christopher Nolan, but he would have to make it kind of like an action mm. mindfuck kind of thing. But I'm open to he, that. Christopher Nolan, I I don't think Christopher Nolan could leave any questions unanswered. I think he'd have to. Um, yeah. He'd have to systematically go through every question, ticking them off. Uh, he but but he would do it good. Oh yeah yeah I yeah, know yeah. He would absolutely do something great with it. He'd probably build the actual spaceship and film it up there in space <laughs> they would blast that up and he would absolutely do it for real because he because he did that with batman didn't he, he actually yeah just, he actually he actually just trained up christian bale to fight bad guys in yeah the and he of actually and broke his back just... and put him in a well for a couple of months <laughs> yeah. as well. That's, you know they, they really get into it 
Um, yeah, yeah. The, the final director that I would think to actually make this was Alex Garland. He directed Ex Machina. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't yeah. seen Annihilation, but uh, oh, this is kind of should. in a similar vein. Alex Garland is um he, he he's very good. Annihilation was wonderful and very Annihilation was um very similar to to this actually. It's just it's a group of people walk into this strange sci-fi reality in this bubble mm-hmm. and you largely just follow them exploring it. Not a lot happens. There's a bit of like what the hell is that and then they kind of answer oh that's because uh, this weird thing's happening with DNA because of this, and it's that same thing where it just raises more questions. Okay. And then you get to the end, and there's an encounter with a kind of alien being, and it's it's one of the most unnerving sequences I can think of in a film in recent years, actually. But no, it, it's, it's very similar, I think, to how you describe this. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's a good film. He might actually be a solid shot then. So, okay, well, there you go. That's it. We've got a director now for it. Alex Garden, there we go. Um, I was thinking if if Fincher did do it, um, you know, what, when would he actually do it? You know, like what films was he making at around the time he was talking to Morgan Freeman? Because it, it looks like momentum for Rendezvous with Rama peaked between 2003 and 2012. In that kind of period, that's when it was most likely to be made. Uh, right. in, in that period, we've got Panic Room, uh, Zodiac, with a five-year gap between them. And mm. then Benjamin Button, Social Network, Go With Dragon Tattoo. And then after that, it's House of Cards, basically. Zodiac's a very good film, but it does feel like a... It feels a bit like David Fincher throwing something out there with less work than usual, that, uh, just from a technical point of view. it feel, It's that classic thing, I think, where a director's had a project or two fall apart, and they're like, shit, I just need to make something, and they just bash out something quickly. Yeah. Um, and Zodiac really does feel like one of those, so it makes sense if that's perhaps the film he made following giving up on Rendezvous with Rama. Yeah, know. it's it's like in between them, in between Panic Room and Zodiac, he just did uh, a bunch of like short films and music videos, like TV shorts and mm. stuff. The other next gap was between uh, Benjamin Button and The Social Network. I think there was a gap of about two years there. Well, what what about the gap we're in now? Maybe he was going to make it now and he gave up. His last feature film was uh, 2014, Gone Girl. Well, what you call it? Morgan Freeman wanted to be Commander <laughs> Norton. That, like, that's like oh, a really? starship commander. And Morgan Freeman is, is what I, well, with all due respect to him, I don't know what age he is now. He's been an eternally old man. Yeah, uh, you know, those. if he still wants Never to be young. in it, in that role, I would say yeah. that he, he shouldn't be the commander. He shouldn't be Commander Norton. Uh, he would need to step aside from that role and let someone else do it. Are there any are there any actors who strike you as being an obvious fit for for this film then if if Morgan Freeman's not quite right for the starship captain? Uh I, I would need to think about that. That's something that didn't enter my head to be honest. I'd need to stew in that for a little while. But it's a starship crew, you know. So we're talking about people between the ages of maybe 30 and 50. I'll tell you right now if um if it's a starship crew, you've got to have Benedict Wong on there. Okay. He's always going to outer space in like supporting roles in in Starship movies. He was in Sunshine. I think he was in Moon very briefly. He's in everything like this. He was also in The Martian. Was he? He's in all of them. I'm telling you, he's in all of these films. Oh, good on. Then let's get him. He's in, in Prometheus. He was in Prometheus, <laughs> The Martian, Sunshine, and 
uh, Moon. That's it. Benedict Wong is in this. Do you think this will ever get made at this point then? I mean, when was their last any movement or news about it? Or Morgan Freeman talking about it? I think it was around 2013 or 2014. I, I think those were like the last kind of uh, grasps at it. Uh, it's still in the concept stage. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm looking here. Um, it says that uh, as recently as 2012, Morgan Freeman uh, was going on about, to quote, it says, we are going to make the mm-hmm. movie when being interviewed by Neil deGrasse Tyson. So that was seven, eight years ago, depending on when this episode comes out. <laughs> um, that's not completely... That's not an unreasonable amount of time. It could still yeah. happen, but... I mean, I mean... Um, I, I wouldn't hold your breath. Yeah, I mean, it, it could still happen, and I'm pretty sure it will happen at some point. Is this uh, is this one of those situations where Morgan Freeman bought the rights to the book, and it's kind of him trying to produce the thing? So, I mean, I'm assuming he has, because he's still attached as producer, and it's still, it's like an official concept, you know? It's not just he wants to do it. Yeah, I, I, I'm reading here that his production company, Revelations Entertainment, is the company attached to to making it? So I guess he must, or the company must hold the rights yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean David Fincher's quite notorious for for unmade projects as well. He's got a few of these under his belt at this point. It would just be fantastic. Like I like I can imagine the look of the film. You know the way he's got that certain color yeah, grading. Yeah, I think it'd be really nice to see David Fincher do a genre movie again as well because I feel like it's been a while since he's made something that isn't like a drama or a crime drama. But yeah, he, he has got a lot of these these uh, ghosts in the wardrobe, as we said. Um, cinematic corpses, things that never got made. Uh, I mean, just off the top of my head, he, he had a, a remake of Fantastic Voyage, the, the film from the 60s where people go inside someone's body, shrink down to heal them. Uh, a remake of 2000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, he was at one point going to do a remake of Heavy Metal, the the animation anthology that ultimately kind of morphed into uh, a Netflix show. Um, and he was most recently attached to World War Z 2, but I think that's officially definitely not happening, as it obviously was never going to actually happen. Um, he's quite prone to this whole, yeah, I'll make that, and then it never happens kind of thing. I, I think he's, sh- uh, like, I mean, yeah, I would love to see, like, a sci-fi from him again. If if you like that, listener, uh, come back next week and listen to whatever film we cover then. And uh, and even if you didn't like that episode, check out some other ones, because this is the first one we've recorded, and we'll probably get better. So, this is like our warm-up. We're very much learning as we go along here. Thanks for listening to Development Hell. Subscribe and like and find us on Twitter and Facebook and so on if you haven't already. We're at DevHellPod on everything, pretty much. DevHellPod. And, uh, yeah, subscribe, definitely. That's most important to help the show take off in these early days. And it will mean that you'll be alerted to our upcoming slate of episodes as they go out, and and they're all great. I, I do think we really kind of find our feet towards the back end of this first season. I nearly release the episodes out of order, but there's, you know, the odd little running joke and so on that doesn't make as much sense. You can also head over to dimreturns.com and then click through to the Development Hell page for more info about the show. Thanks for listening. Bye!